Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women. My name is Jen Grimmett, and with us today is Nicole Williams, student at Duke Divinity School at Duke University to speak on the topic of queerness and social equity. So welcome, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So, you know, to help our audience get to know you a little bit better, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, the work that you do, and what brings you um, with us today to speak on this topic? I'm a third year at Duke Divinity School, um, getting my Bachelor's of Divinity, senior year, Um, (laughs) I'm a part of the UCC growing up and now, like, fully back into it on the UCC United Church of Christ um, denomination as it relates to the church life. Um, I am halfway through ordination process. I, um, activism is literally at the heart um, of what I do in my very being for, you know, humanity and all of God's creation. Um, just recently, I've been uh, asked to be a part and selected to be a part of uh, the 2018-2019 trans-seminarian cohort. Um, this cohort is a group of seminarians who are chosen around the country to come together to do crucial uh, work of creating change in the world as it relates to trans um, people, gender, uh, queer, gender, non-binary people, of which I identify as. And that's a a little about me. I'm from Durham, North Carolina. I grew up here um, in Durham, North Carolina, yeah. (laughs) I love Durham. (laughs) It's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. So for anyone listening, you should definitely take a road trip to Durham, North Carolina. It has a lot going on. (laughs) You know, to kind of get us started, I'm wondering if you could share what, how you, Nicole, would define the terms queerness and social equity. Okay, yeah. um, Queerness could be understood as an identity. Um... But also, like on a deeper level, um, to me, queerness is a way of being in the world that isn't necessarily normative or what is assumed to be normal. It's kind of like a mode of understanding the world that centers those whose society um, just frankly just kind of don't understand. Um, If I could put queerness in one word, uh, literally, like I would say Jesus, because like in my understanding and my perception and the lens in which I even read Jesus. Jesus is like the epitome of like how queerness moves and acts in the world. Okay. Um, <laughs> social equity. This is something that is very dear to me uh, as well. Um, social equity, I would say, is not just about like, you know, this issue of like equality, but equity is more deeper than that. And it's like the root of what, you know, we, we kind of need and what we need to push for as far as like access to opportunities and resources that people need to live, but not only live, but also thrive. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in, you know, you indicated that if you were to name 
name queerness in one word, that it would be Jesus. <laughs> so I have not heard that before. I would love for you, you to kind of in, expand on that because that's really interesting. So kind of like my third point of like queerness being like this mode of, of understanding the world and that, you know, that centers those that, you know, society don't always understand. Um, if you look at the life and, and legacy and history of Jesus, um, Jesus basically lived at the margin. And in today's world, the, the margins are the people who I believe in society don't understand and therefore often exclude or, you know, oppresses the margins. And Jesus was all for that. Jesus was always doing what society, society back then, was the Roman, you know, kind of like government empire, like Jesus, like, turned the, uh, the empire upside down. So, like, Jesus' just way of being was, was such this way of just, like, just different, just different in the ways in which, like, society expected Jesus, like, Jesus uprooted the ways in which, you know, we would think of a king or Jesus was just dope. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Thank you. <laughs> I'm get that if it's not a t-shirt, it should absolutely be a t-shirt. Jesus is dope. <laughs> you should start that. <laughs> um, I write that down. <laughs> In the recent years, the concept of intersectionality has really acquired a more consistency at the table within discussions about inclusion and equity. So you know, given, you know, what you have already shared and, you know, whether it be professional or personal experiences, from your perspective, how would you describe the intersections of queerness, race, and gender for women and girls of color, particularly, you know, within organizational, institutional structures? Wow. Uh, and like one word that like kind of like my life almost I mean, to me, it's kind of like this triple whammy. Um, so you have homophobia within, like, communities and institutions. You have, you know, women, as it relates to, you know, black women, this gender uh, oppression going on. I'm sorry, what was your third one? Uh, race. And race, yes, race, the big one. And race within all of that, you know, being a black, queer woman, like, it's almost like, yeah, oppression to the third degree. Within institutions, um, as far as, like, schools and, and even um, a big one for me, church, um, you have, like, homophobia on so many levels. And not only, like, you know, within uh, just, like, you know, the black church, but, like, in the white church. Um, as it relates to institutions, the school systems are somewhat, you know, triple whammy by oppression as it relates to black women, as it relates to opportunities. Um, not only opportunities, but representation. Representation is scarce um, in the institution as it relates to the intersections. Um, you don't, you can go into institutions and be taught by people who do not look like you or identify as you. Like, it's really crazy. 
you know, what I'm hearing you say is that it's incredibly hard to learn and move through the educational experience when, you know, a person does not see any any part of them reflected back in the people who are teaching them. Exactly. So how does that imp- like how does that impact ed- educational achievement? You know, in the short and long term. Um. Essentially, it's like a way of getting people in the door as far as, like, you checking out boxes to say, you know, we throw this term around diversity, um, but you're actually not putting them in the institution or in a place to actually thrive in those spaces. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of like get them, getting them in the door, but um, the hope that you're actually um, giving them as they are in the doors. Um, it's, it's, you can barely see it. Um, it's all—it's almost as if um, we have to create this hope for our own selves because it's, it's not present in the spaces that we're actually invited in. Um, as kind of like this checkbox. So I'm going to drill down a little bit further in that. One of the things that has come up is in how not just you know a higher ed. But as far down as, you know, primary school, that systems have kind of latched on to the terms, you know, a commitment to diversity, a commitment to inclusion. Um, But then, you know, and so that helps to collect and gather up, you know, a broader spectrum of student identities. But then, you know, what I'm hearing you say and what I've heard others say is that once we're in those doors, the the infrastructure is not set up to actually support. Would you, exactly. And, you know, like what, what types of things happen um, as far as, you know, emotionally and, you know, as far as just logistically functioning as a social being, functioning as a student? Um, it's almost like a prison. Um, there's isolation that goes on. Um, there's, like, self-esteem issues that can be, like, impacted gravely that, you know, affects your mobility in these type of spaces. It's like an inner deterioration that kind of, like, goes on. Um and like you say, as, as young as these primary um, schools, these younger younger schools, it's devastating. Yeah. Would you, you know, someone else has suggested that in some ways it's being used as a marketing brand. Yeah, exactly. The numbers getting so that we appear... Um, to society and to the outside world as if, like, we're doing this thing um, so big. And and for far too long, I feel like, you know, that has created this wave of even, like, kind of like white exceptionalism, like this pat on the back to the world. But, you know, inwardly it's, like, deeply traumatic and, like, just wrong. So what do you think... Like, what do you think can be done to help mobilize internal changes? 
I think we could talk about that for maybe um, some more than this time a lot. But, you know, kind of like at the core, um, if I kind of just give a, a, a short kind of uh, map, um, I think it goes all the way back to, you know, how we view the, the human and redefining um, the human um, in general. Um, and then, you know, as we move, we move through this, people that have kind of like been through these type of things, um, we need to create ways in which they can be visible because it's nothing like hearing um, hopeful things from uh, someone who looks like you and um, who understands you. It's just, it's just going to like mean something different to the younger generations that, that are coming up. If I can see it, you know, or be, even if I can't see the whole thing, like maybe I can see like one part of myself in, in someone, like that's going to give me hope to, you know, uh, persevere and um, create more hope for others coming behind me. You know, in some ways, you would feel validated in your identities if there was more representation and support. Yes, that is like, uh, that is like huge. It's really huge. Yeah, we just have to have, it, it is a very, it is a lack of support right now. Um, visibility is, is kind of like everything um, right now, and, and we just have to have it. You know, kind of branching off a bit, what, in your opinion, like what types of implicit messaging does our society send to women and girls of color in regards to their access to leadership roles? Particularly if we're looking at this intersectionality between the queerness, race, and gender. Okay. Um, I know it's a big question. Well, I think I'm, yeah, I, I, I think I want to name up front that, like, you know, Finding queer women um, or trans women in leadership is particularly, like, it's hard. We see leaders that are, you know, white men and sometimes uh, black men um, as it relates to this intersection. And we see white women, but we rarely ever even right now see black straight women. So there's a deficit there. There's this assumption that black women um, in power need to have a family. And so talking about this uncomfortability that we have as a society with um, black women, um, strong, you know, independent black women, or, you know, women who just, they haven't lived up to what society think is a stabilized uh, woman um, or this is, you know, how we see power as this form of, like, stability and anything that kind of threatens that, you know, we, we kind of <laughs> shy away from. As a rate to um, black queer women who, you know, present more masculine, they aren't seen, you know, as woman enough. So there's another barrier there. So it's like all of these these barriers of trying to live up to these social standards mm-hmm. that, you know, are are just false narratives or just false representation of humanity in general. 
So I want to read a statement, um, an excerpt from an article that I read to see what what your thoughts are. Okay. You know, the, the article was from the European Journal on American Studies, and the title of the article is The Missing Colors of the Rainbow, Black Queer Resistance. And, you know, in particular with what you have touched on with your how social equity really is at the heart of the work that you do. You know, the author Elena Kiesling, she states, it's a lot of words, so hang in with me. (laughs) The the socio-political movements of black and queers remain severed, and the rift between both communities grows with every new articulation of gay equals black analogies. Homophobic utterances of leading black community institutions, the silence on racial equality from leading LGBT organizations, or the calls for safety within gay neighborhoods that target people of color and economically deprived populations. There's so much in there. Um, Mm -hmm. So what do you think? Can you pronounce a person's name again? Is it Keesling? Keesling. K-I-E-S-L-I-N-G. So, first and foremost, like, they are exactly right. Um, as far as, you know, this gay is black, um, this is this type of, you know, rhetoric that assumes whiteness. Um, and what I mean by that is that, like, you have to be, you know, gay or black. Um, you can't be both. As it relates to black trans queer folk, they are, you know, the most vulnerable in these communities. They're dying, like literally it's life-threatening. Black trans women die by the pheasants, like even more. Um, and I think that we need to get rid of uh, this assumed whiteness, um, even from the LGBTQIA community and center black and trans queer people. Homophobia, you know, amongst black institutions or leaders, uh, you know, you have like church, and um, that has played out over centuries, especially in black institutions. Okay. Um, like church. In what ways? Hmm. As it relates to black church, there are a lot of things that are going on, even like right now in the media as it relates to um, viral videos that are going on. And essentially, it's the black institution of like, you know, if you're black, you got to be black. Um, you can't be too gay, too gay in, the, in the black community. Or, you know, black people are essentially, like, killing their own people um, as it relates to the institutions that, you know, queer people are, you know, sometimes the center of these institutions, like the church. We hear, like, the, the hate, the rhetoric, you know, of the pulpit as it relates to different um, positions within the church. I could go on and on, especially as it relates to the black church. So, you know, before we leave this point, is there anything else that you would like to add in regards to, you know, the sociopolitical movements of blacks and queers and how that has been, you know, running parallel 
intentionally sometimes? Does that make um, sense? I think, yeah, uh, I think um, what you said is kind of like, I couldn't have said it better on the parallelness that you were saying. Yeah, the things that are going on in government and, yeah, it's kind of like the mirror of each other. Have you seen ways where those parallels can be moved to an, a more intersectional experience? Um, I think that we have to admit a lot. Um, right now, it doesn't seem like, you know, as a nation, um, as a church, as by the Christ, we're not, we're not admitting um, the truth about our histories and um, the erasure of certain people's history. So therefore, you have this, you know, false representation of things when you try to erase people's histories. Would you agree that, you know, two primary d drivers towards change would be education and conversations? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and with that education, not only like from an institutional point, but just things that people know and things that people been through, like, I think, like, the oral um, kind of tradition is, like, kind of lost. It's relationality. It's, it's what's being lost. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. You know, as we wrap up our time together, I want to kind of end with rounding back to the theme of this podcast. Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women. Um, this theme is aligned with the 33rd Women's Conference that took place at Shaw University in Raleigh on October 20th. And, I'm, mm -hmm. and I'd love to hear your thoughts on suggestions about how Black and Brown Girls and Women can be learning, lifting, and leading to help bring about social equity. I think um, for me, the biggest um, thing here is creating mentorship. It may sound like something small, but it goes a long way. Black women and girls, um, first and foremost, you know, empowering each other. And when we empower each other, we can go out and empower others. Mm hmm that is well aligned with what you were pointing to earlier in that ref the importance of reflection, right? The, the importance of having identities reflected back to women and girls as they are moving through their own lived experiences. So, you know, I appreciate you, you know, bringing that back around. I think it's a really nice way to end our conversation. You know, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really good look at the different ways that these issues impact many communities. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women with our guest, Nicole Williams student at Duke Divinity School at Duke University. Special thanks for this podcast go to Shaw University, Elon University, and the Raleigh Apex branch of the NAACP for supporting this important work.